You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solar A Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and Wattwatches, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me is my co-host David Leach from ITK. David, um, how are you? Giles, I'm uh, relatively well, thank you. And I trust all our listeners are enjoying listening to the podcast. There's a, a few things going on. Look, there are. Sometimes you sort of wonder whether things are going on and uh, because there's no big new announcements of this, that, or the other thing and no great um, um, you know, claims or whatever, but um, an awful lot going on in the background as um, we've seen. Um, I guess the big news is all more work on changes of rules and regulations and things like that. And the Australian Energy Market Commission um, put out a uh, very big document last week about something it calls COGATI, which is sort of the combining of the generation and transmission pricing. Um, really, it's their sort of market, um, well, I guess you call it a... Um, a market signal to try and solve this problem, which we've been talking about an awful lot between the difference between a lot of generation being built and not enough transmission being built. But it hasn't really gone down very well with the people out there in energy land. No, I think it's uh, because I think it's uh, solving the wrong problem. Um, as, as Snowy Hydro said, the problem isn't coordinating, generating and transmission. The problem is there's not enough transmission. <laughs> And uh, this is a, a complex solution to, to, to that uh, issue and requires, uh, according to the submissions that I've read, quite a lot of fairly fundamental changes to the market at a time. In the, and it's also going on at the same time as we know, and we haven't talked about it that much yet, about the ESB's uh, major reform process for the market, which is currently underway. And there have been a lot of really good submissions to that uh, process that I've been reading. And we'll talk some more about that. Um, So I I think the Kogarty thing is a lot of effort for at best a minor um, improvement. And quite possibly it'll actually make things worse rather than better. And makes us take our eye off the main focus, which at the moment, by far the most single most important thing in the market for the future of renewable energy is getting, uh, and for getting lower electricity prices too, and for increasing reliability, is getting more transmission built. Yes, in fact, um, well, you wrote a very good analysis um, on on this um, based on the submissions which you had looked to port um, into in great detail and um, we've got some very positive remarks back from some key players in the industry um, admiring your work and um, it was interesting to note there was a seminar held on Thursday by the AEMC now we weren't there but we are told by people who were there and we've even been sent a few um, screenshots of the response of the people there to the Kogati proposals and 80% of them, 88% voted, said they were not in favour um, of the AMC recommendations going ahead. And it seems to me, Dave, the response of a lot of people was that, look, a market signal might be fine, but we are so far behind, as you have pointed out, that really um, probably some centralised intervention via the, um, via the ISP and some accelerated um, regulatory decisions just to catch up then we might actually think about a long-term market signal for other things which need to happen. Yes, I mean, uh, I read an extremely good theoretical paper uh, uh, written by uh, a person who's a theoretical economist and also on the board of ERCOI, 
uh, the Texas uh, utility that explains how locational pricing fits in there. And to be fair, as uh, Tim Nelson pointed out in his article in Renew Economy this week, uh, um, uh, 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 the, uh, the, the AMC has listened to some of the complaints and dropped the, the, what I would regard as a completely stupid idea of having this locational pricing determine what transmission is built and, and when it's built. Uh, but it still seems to me, as I say, that there are just such fundamental issues with it uh, that we don't need to address right now. And not only that, if we address them now, it presupposes what changes will have to come with the ESB's reform process, uh, which I think should uh, have a free run at things and not be constrained by changes that are rushed through ahead. But look, it's a complicated issue. And probably most of our listeners don't really care about too much, Giles. Oh, yes, they do. <laughs> I should just point out that Tim Nelson is from the um, Australian Energy Market Commission and um, he's a former AGL economist, a highly regarded um, person, and he's also working with the AESB on the um, on looking at the whole market design. Now, um, David, just give us a little bit of a taste of what you've found. I mean, you've gone through some of the submissions. I mean, this is really just a complete rewrite of the whole, well, a potential rewrite, I guess, of the whole sort of national electricity market. Um, what can you tell us? Uh, on, on, the, on the reform process, well, I think it's, we should save it for a whole other podcast, uh, to be honest, Giles, but um, uh, one of the issues is going to be, there's a whole lot of people that actually like the energy market, but there's clearly going to be a debate about day ahead markets and capacity markets uh, amongst issues and whether they can improve uh, things. When I've looked around the world, the experience with capacity markets has not been that positive. I guess the issue that people uh, are concerned concerned with to an extent is is that the price signals in in the energy only market that we have now uh, are not going to work for building uh, new uh, reserve capacity dispatchable capacity for those few times when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining so the question is how do you get paid for providing those services I think myself, Giles, though, that people should also be thinking about how does all this excess solar that we're going to get in the middle of the day, how does that get paid for? Is that all? I mean, imagine an economy where we only had solar and, and I don't know, pumped hydro. Uh, you know, how is that? Does an energy only market even work in that situation? And another thing that I haven't found enough attention being paid to in the, in the submissions is, again, a technical area, but one that interests me because I'm not technical, uh, is moving to a low inertia grid. How are you going to get paid for these things like fast frequency and providing power electronics control uh, of transmission? So all these things that we need to enable uh, an increasingly uh, renewable, variable, variable energy grid. And that is what we are, an increasingly distributed energy grid. That is the direction we're moving. And in my opinion, the reforms should be based around uh, facilitating that. Absolutely. It's got to sort of um, look as far ahead as it can in the future and sort of design the market, which um, may be suitable and um, and kind of forget about the past. And um, so, so, so sorry, Giles, just, you know, the thing that's bugged me for years and I, is, you know, energy only markets work on this concept of a merit order, basically, where, you know, the lowest variable cost renewable energy is bid in first. And, and you bid up your higher variable cost, you know, it might be uh, 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 brown coal and then black coal and then gas as the highest marginal cost until you get to the level where, where the amount bid in equals the demand for any half hour or five minutes. And that's where the price is set and everyone gets that price. 
But if all the energy is zero marginal cost, that whole bid stack doesn't actually work at all, and yet the market still has to has to function. So that's the sort of things that I, I think uh, you know, it's even theoretical economics are going to be have to think about. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what they come up with, and um, I just probably like just to put my um, pitch in for what's known as a flexibility market, which I guess is a cross between an energy market and a capacity market without this sort of rigid structures, um, and probably just sort of reflects um, the dispatchability and the flexibility because that's basically what we know is going to be required in a high renewables grid. And if we're making the transition, we're going to lower the emissions, then all the analysis and the costings tell us that um, that's going to be the least cost alternative. Um, on that subject, David, it was interesting. We got a bit more of a um, idea from uh, AEMO. Of course, it's working on its integrated system plan. It's got a draft coming out in December. The final thing won't be coming out until mid next year. But I suspect this one's going to be quite important and even more important than last year's, which was based loosely around the um, the, um, the the emissions reduction targets from the two competing political parties. This one has five different scenarios, ranging from sort of slow change, which you would suspect would be catastrophic all the way through various forms of fast change driven by the consumers or technologies and a step change which basically looks at well what do we need to do if we're serious about the Paris Treaty and keeping temperatures capped at 1.5 to 2 degrees and really even from the central scenarios um, which we kind of unearthed this week um, there's really not much fossil fuel or thermal generation of any type around about 2040. Well 2040 is still a long way away and I'm increasingly um uh, I understand why why EMO is looking at that year, but I'm much more focused on shortening that time period. I, I, I pay little, you know, people who talk about 2050, I regard as just paying lip service to a concept and not being serious. For me, 2030 uh, is the time frame I'm focused on. And one of the questions I hope that the new versions of the ISP will get us closer to is how much dispatch, dispatchable power or demand response, whatever it is, is actually needed for a given level of variable renewable energy penetration. So, for instance, at the moment, we've got the federal government wandering around with its UNGI program and convinced that there's been too much variable renewable energy built and not enough dispatchable generation. I guess I'm a fan of gradually moving to the new technologies for dispatchable generation, which are not coal and, and, and only a very minor role for gas, but they're the, the pumped hydro and, and, and demand response and that sort of thing. But it would be nice to have an authoritative view. And I think ISP, I think AEMO and, and the people building the ISP understand this. It would be nice to have a, an authoritative view of how much dispatchable power is actually needed. Um, yeah. Well, I've got good news for you. I think that's exactly what they're working on and they have been urged to work on, but I don't think they've come up with the answer quite yet. Um, speaking about dispatchable power and pumped hydro, um, a lot of commentary this week about snowy hydro, um, some criticism both from the National Parks and from the Victoria um, Energy Policy Centre from Bruce Mountain. Um, let's remember also that there's been a fair bit of criticism, including from you and myself um, and also the likes of Paul Hislop. Um, what did you make of um, this latest analysis? Well, but on the other side, uh, as you know, we also went in and interviewed uh, Snowy uh, and and had a, a good uh, half hour discussion uh, and heard their side of the story. And one of the things I learnt in that was that Snowy is not intending to operate much in the daily 
balancing market. That is, they're not going to pump up, uh, you know, in the middle of the day when solar's at zero and send the water down in the, in the evening. That's not what they see as their opportunity. Their opportunity is going to be more in the seasonal balancing. So in the like autumn quarter, the September quarter that we've just ended, that's when demand is low and solar and wind production is high. And so that's a time when they can charge up their reservoirs. And then in the March quarter, they can release some of that water every day. So one of the criticisms Bruce Mountain made is that they've got a lot of storage, but they'll only be able to release it once a year. Uh, and I think the issue has always been around they've got a lot of more storage than they'll be able to use. Who's going to pay for the last you know, nine of their 11 days of storage or whatever the number actually is? Uh, uh, because most of the time you only want one or two. But the way uh, Gordon Weimer from Snowy explained it does seem to make more sense. You know, that you can recharge all the upper reservoirs in September and use them to balance the market in, in, uh, in, in, in the March quarter. Now, have- yeah. Yeah, and, and you can find that podcast um, um, just it's just from a month or two ago, and it's um, well worth another listen. Look, it's an interesting point, isn't it? Because um, on the, what Gordon Weimer explains that and he explains that well, it's not quite the way that Snowy is actually sold by the politicians, is it? It's sort of you know Snowy is the answer to sort of all our issues with with wind and solar. And the um, the truth of it is is that we probably need more sort of daily um, balancing of wind and solar. We will need more daily balancing wind and solar and that's likely to come from more distributed um, storage be it sort of you know pumped hydro maybe yeah, in South Australia and, and battery storage. That's right lower lower capital cost uh, daily balancing things look as we move to five minute and we've said this lots of times and I think anyone who's really in the industry understands that there's not going to be one answer there's going to be a portfolio of products that provide the answer and they range from batteries uh, demand response Uh, conventional hydro, pumped hydro, and uh, you can facilitate those at various costs and for various needs. The only question you would have as a a long-term seasonal supplier of pumped hydro is how much of your lunch is going to be eaten by someone providing five-minute batteries uh, storage in in, in a five-minute market. And, you know, uh, the studies in California show that uh, on a daily market, Batteries are just uh, can economically uh, uh, do two to four hours of storage. Uh, at the moment, people would say, or lower cost uh, brownfields pumped hydro, such as available in New South Wales at Shoalhaven, or down lots of it in Tasmania. Uh, like the Tasmanians claim, they can do pumped hydro uh, cheaper than than gas. Uh, so, so there's a lot of options out there and the way to work it out, I mean, this is where a market, I suppose, can come into play, but it really needs to be a, a uh, arguably a reverse auction type of market where some official forecaster says that we're likely to need X megawatts of this sort of capacity. I'd like you to have a tender for it for all the different sorts. Now, you can argue that's what the ANGI process is, but I don't think it does really look like that. No, it sounds more like sort of intervention um, in the market. And um, it was interesting. I actually talked to the people at um, Delta Electricity who own Vales Point um, Cold Generator um, today and said, um, where are we up to with Angie? Because if you go actually back to um, before the election, Angus Taylor was very anxious to um, roll this out before the election. He said it was of utmost urgency. And 
I guess that was partially explained by the fact that they were expecting to lose the election, but they didn't. Now they've won it and they still haven't heard. And um, Delta said, well, we haven't heard. Um, you tell us. But um, the reason I, I was talking... I think I'll come back to Delta in a second because they've not only got a pumped hydro project in, in South Australia, they've got some other news that you're going to mention. But uh, uh, I think the my uh, cynical, and I try not to be cynical, uh, thing is that they didn't get enough coal proposals. They were all gas and pumped hydro. <laughs> Mostly pumped hydro, you know. And, I mean, well, is, if, it, is it really if, the if, federal... Go on. If, no, sorry. If, if, if they're waiting for coal proposals, they're going to be, going to be waiting an awful long time, I think. <laughs> well, that's the point. They only got one very minor coal proposal. It's fairly humorous, really. <laughs> yes, it is a bit, actually. And that, that coal proposal, of course, did come from Vale's point, and it was just really an, an efficiency drive to sort of, I guess, to sort of expand its capacity and maybe extend its life. Um, interestingly, today they've announced a 62-megawatt solar plant. Um, we haven't seen many solar PPAs um, or even wind PPAs. We've heard lots of sort of, you know, announcements and development approvals and things like that. So this is the first um, significant PPA for a while. It's um, nice that it comes from Trevor St. Baker in Vales Point. Um, 62 megawatt solar plant to be built on a rehabilitated ash dam. So um, that requires a certain technology to make it work. But um, And a 10-year PPA, which happens to coincide with the expected closure of Vales Point. But I guess that could be adjusted if they find a way around that and to find a way to extend it. But um, Yes, quite interesting that uh, Delta's first um, foray well, into renewables. And, um, and, this, and this is one group that won't have a transmission uh, attachment issue at Delta, I would uh, think. You know, no, that's 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 exactly the point. And um, I should point out there was there was a one other tiny little solar farm in Victoria which actually got a PPA this week from Mojo Power. That's just worth mentioning in passing. Um, David, we were talking about scenarios and different things, and I'd just like to. Um, we wrote a story a month or so ago. IT Power got together with University of New South Wales and I think um, University of Melbourne to write a to produce a new model called OpenSEM. And um, earlier today, I actually talked to the two people behind this development, Oliver um, Oliver Waldring and um, Jose Zapata, to find out what OpenSEM meant, which is basically a model where you can sort of play with all the different scenarios you want for the energy transition, 100% renewables in 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and whatever level of emissions. Anyway, let's have a listen to what they had to say. Oliver Waldring and Jose Zapata, both from IT Power, thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Uh, thank you for having us. A pleasure. Thank you, Giles. Oliver, why don't you tell us first about OpenSEM? Uh, you wrote an article for Renew Economy a month or so ago, and um, it was a pretty interesting stuff. And my understanding of OpenSEM is that it's basically this wonderfully, wonderfully complex, um, hopefully not too complex to operate, but um, modelling platform that allows people to fashion their own ideas of what the future grid might look like. Sure, Giles. So, we built OpenSEM, and I should say uh, we received funding from ARENA, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, and also New South Wales, Victorian and South Australian governments for this. Uh, we felt that there was no rigorous, up-to-date uh, modelling tool that really reveals how best to transition from our current coal and gas-based electricity sector to a future low-emission system. and Obviously, to, to achieve any particular target in the future, a renewable energy or emission abatement target at least cost, while maintaining energy security, what we need to know is when and where should existing capacity be retired and when and where and what type and how much renewable energy and storage capacity and transmission capacity needs to be added. 
And that's really what the model reveals. And of course, we want to explore cost implications. And our feeling was, without informed answers to these questions, policymakers, regulators, investors, agencies supporting renewable energy, for example, may make economically suboptimal decisions, I suppose, about um, which, which would effectively increase the cost of renewable energy and delay or make the transition harder than it needs to be. So that's what, really what OpenSEM is designed to achieve. How does it fit in with AEMO's integrated system plan? Because that seems to be designed to do the same thing, or is this more of a more of an open platform where people can explore their their own scenarios? Yes, it, it is. Uh, it is somewhat similar to the ISP, except that this is a tool. So this is a tool rather than a report, a tool that anybody can use freely. And I guess the key point too is that this is an open source model, so. With the objective of building trust, uh, every single line of code and every input assumption is is uh, is published. So it's actually we start using ISP input assumptions as kind of a default position, but users can modify these assumptions in any way they please. Hmm. Jose, let's turn to you. You've been heavily involved and you've kind of led this project. So what more can you tell us about it? Um, it that uh, it's um, it's an open source tool, so um, we have spent a lot of effort and time trying to um, balance the need for complexity and detail that this problem requires with as much transparency and easy to use as we could muster. Um, and it was uh, very challenging because uh, one and the other are at opposite ends. I think I, I would echo I would echo what um, Oliver said about being related to the ISP, to the ISP in the sense that it's it's very much related to the ISP because it, in a way it tends to replicate many of the questions that they ask um, at, and in once again in an open source platform and uh, trying to as, as best I can to replicate some of the assumptions but also making new assumptions um, and uh, that uh, it has been a pleasure to to work and, and develop it and it's also been a massive challenge because uh, the, this problem is so complex. I mean, the, the real um, grid is so complex to, to manage and ours is fa fairly small in comparison to the other state-of-the-art models that deal with the interconnection in Europe or the United States that um, I'm, 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 I'm very pleased with how it's come out, and, but at the same time, we have a lot, of, a lot of work to improve it. What sort of scenarios then are you expecting people to, mono, to monitor? I guess we're not talking about business as usual, otherwise there'd probably be no point. So we're already talking about an energy transition, and I guess we're talking about high renewables um, scenarios, we're up to 100% renewable scenarios, and I guess over differing periods of time. Is that about right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the main thing that the ISP does is that it, it serves AIMO, and they need to forecast what's coming. Uh, whereas um, um, for for the general public, we're, they're interested in, in serving different needs. For example, how do we tackle climate change? How do we reduce emissions? And whether would that cost the world? So um, you can definitely impose uh, carbon price pathways and emissions targets pathways and renewable energy target pathways so that go way beyond what current policy and, and even the most inspired of current policies are looking at so that you can evaluate, well, when would things need to be built? How much would it cost? And and will the will the system sustain it all? Well, so in fact, in our website, 
we've included that. Uh, and what if we dialed in a 100% renewable energy target and, say, dialed in and put in a year, say, 2030 or 2040? What would that tell us? Uh, it would tell us that uh, you would need uh, tremendous amounts of uh, wind and solar and uh, biomass and storage to uh, replace existing conventional generation. Um, but that uh, also the, the, the system will have to be much more interconnected than it currently is because the way that uh, a renewable energy system works is that it combines um, variable energy resources in different geographical parts of the country and uh, it actually orchestrates them together to deliver all the energy in the system by transmitting energy and storing energy. So... Um, Okay, let, let's, let, let's, let's, let's look at another scenario. Let's look at a meeting 1.5 degrees at most efficient cost. Now, that may mean 100% renewables by 2050, or I'm not too sure what it tells us, actually. Maybe it's, maybe it's earlier, maybe it's later. Have you actually worked out roughly what that scenario might entail? That actually is the most aggressive of the scenarios that we have calculated, and it's based on the IPCC's budget for emissions for Australia. And um, given the trajectory of emissions that we have, so that one doesn't specify a target of renewables. It just gives you a, a total amount of emissions that the electrical system can generate. And that one is the one that transitions the quickest because we're running out of our budget very, very quickly. So what they do is they just calculate a pathway of how much emissions you can have. And essentially, it says you have used pretty much all your budget in the first five years. So that's Oops. that particular scenario transitions to fully renewable by 2030. Wow. Okay. Right. Okay. So um, hopefully there is a happy medium. Perhaps what, what about two degrees? Um, what about the two degrees scenario? Do we, does that give us a bit more leeway? We found that, um, that the difference was negligible, that they were both way more aggressive than uh, linear transitions to 100% renewables by 2050. Um, the, 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 difference was, the difference was negligible between a 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees. They, they both impose severe restrictions and, and tremendous amount of action in Australia early. So we only put the 1.5 because the two actually it probably was it probably was 10 percent less renewables in 2030 than the other one, but then as as aggressive. Mm -hmm. Oliver, it's an interesting one. Um, if it's if it is that aggressive, is this um, does this risk actually scaring off policymakers and rulemakers and things like that, saying, "Oh, this is all too bloody hard. We can't do it." <laughs> Look, I think certainly some will be daunted by the level of effort required to achieve IPC scenarios. Uh, the flip side, though, is that I think a lot of people will look at these results and take some, uh, some will develop some confidence that achieving deep renewable energy target scenarios are achievable. And I guess the the one of the key results is that even um, high penetration renewable energy scenarios are not really more costly than a business as usual or a base case trajectory. And the fundamental reason for that is is that uh, renewable energy is simply not much more or cheaper than uh, conventional generation today. So there's two sides to that coin, but uh, yeah, it's it's certainly the case that to achieve 1.5 or 2 degrees is, is challenging for you. 
Now that um, presents two other questions. We've heard a lot in the uh, nuclear inquiry that's going on right now, and uh, the nuclear lobby tries to pretend that um, going 100% renewables or decarbonising largely through renewables involves sort of three or four times, and well, I think one one submission suggests seven times the cost of business and usual or nuclear or what have you. So your your modelling there pretty much debunks that that idea. Uh, yeah, we haven't actually run a nuclear scenario yet, uh, although we've talked about it. And Jose, do you want to contribute to this? But our, if I remember correctly, our feeling was that based on the numbers uh, published recently, I think out of CSIRO, uh, we can see straight away that uh, OpenSEM would be very, very unlikely to call it in to any particular scenario. It's simply, there are simply cheaper options that would come in first. I guess there would also be quicker options, wouldn't there, Jose? I mean, if um, if, if you're if you're talking about renewables by twenty in the twenty thirties, then there's not a um, not a chance that nuclear will be built in that time. No, um, it um, it I'm not f- entirely familiar with um, how nuclear is costed. The best uh, knowledge I have is what uh, CSIRO has done, and the the, the le- estimates of lead times, even for the small modular reactors, which is the technology that has been touted as the most likely to be built in Australia, if you started in 2020, you wouldn't be seen by 2032. In the business as case issue, there were already almost 45% of renewables in 2032 in the, bus- in the, base, in the base case without any po- policy incentives. Um, you could build so much wind, so much pump hydro, so much concentrated solar thermal at, 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 a, at a half or a third of the cost, uh, and you would you not have any fuel problems. You could even run with biomass, and it will be essentially cheaper. So um, what we what we are what we're planning to do is probably get the most reliable numbers that we can consider, which we regard to be the CSIRO numbers, and then put um, nuclear in. But our suspicion is based on the on the particular cost that are mark there that OpenSEM would never choose to build them. It would choose cheaper options and just put them in. Mm-hmm. What about the level of storage? I mean, we hear quite a lot of people talking about um, Snowy Hydra, Snowy 2.0, and, and why it's absolutely essential, you know, now and in the next few years. Um, presumably, if we are going to go um, to very large renewables, um, way beyond 50%, then we are going to need a bucket load of storage. Um, what does your modelling tell us about that? Um, yes, it does say that we need a bucket load of storage, but it doesn't necessarily say that all in one particular facility at a given time is the best option. Um, um, so, um, yes, we need a lot of storage, but I am not personally convinced based on the results from OpenSIM that Snowy 2.0 is the way to do it. In fact, Snowy 2.0, first of all, falls short of how much you need. You need um to five times more what uh, Snowy 2.0 would put out, but you would like to have it distributed across the NEM. You don't want power from Queensland solar energy flow all the way to Snowy Hydro and then back out because there's a lot of losses in the middle. So by just building centralized storage in one spot, you're displacing the opportunity to build storage across the entire NEM, which would actually harmonize how energy from wind and solar across the entire country is generated. Mm. And and your modelling presumably says this this is possible and that there are the resources there in with the combination I guess of pumped hydro and battery storage. 
So our model includes uh, pump hydro energy storage in the same assumptions that the ISP does, but also we we offer uh, multiple sizes of pump hydro storage because in the ISP, for example, only offers six hours, but we offer three, six, and 12 hours because there might be that in some cases one is cheaper than the other. Also batteries in one, two, and three hours, but also concentrating solar thermal power at three, six, and 12 hours. And depending on the location and the timing, the options that are preferred are predominantly large-scale storage, pump hydro and CSP at 12 hours, and then a little bit of batteries at one hour. And our suspicion, which requires a lot more study, but I'm going to make a bold claim now, is that there is some, there's somewhat a need for bulk energy storage and also for energy storage that is just for peaking. And it's cheaper to build small-scale energy storage for those peak times and then large-scale energy storage for the for the average rest of the time. So um, sort of Western New South Wales would prefer concentrating solar thermal, but um, northern um, central Queensland might prefer pump hydro, and that has to do with the fact that you can install one or the other. So a combination of storage, but roughly, uh, in very rough terms, at least a third of the capacity should be storage. And to what um, to what extent do you dial in um, demand side of the equation in, in terms of efficiency, demand management, um, the influence of household batteries, um, electric vehicles and things like that? Once again, we use uh, our publicly available data from the ISP, which uh, we we have the neutral trajectory for the ISP 2018, and that includes projections for distributed um, um, generation and storage of energy through PV and batteries, and also electric vehicles. So what OpenSIM does is, based on those assumptions, it deals with the net demand that you need to satisfy by the generation side. And uh, we are offering uh, ability to also change those assumptions, so increase the amount of re renewable energy penetration. Uh, but until we have more, we, we, we're still working on getting data that separates electric vehicles from the rest of the demand. But when we get those, what we aspire to, to offer to the public is that you can actually uh, actively change how much of those technologies appear on the demand side and then ask OpenSEM to deal with the, with the reminder. Mm, fair enough. Oliver, um, what's been the feedback so far um, for this project? Uh, very excellent feedback, actually. We weren't entirely sure how it would be received, but we've received a lot of calls. Uh, from a wide range of stakeholders, um, in particular, I guess some some you know large consulting firms who are dealing directly with a lot of developers, for example, who are particularly interested in what OpenSEM says about uh, future electricity prices under a wide range of scenarios, for example. But also, uh, this, particularly the policymakers uh, from within state governments are also very keen to be using the tool. So. You know, we hoped that it would have a wide range of, of users and it seems to be playing out that way. Hmm. And how can people access this then? Uh, just Google OpenSEM and you will find the OpenSEM website. And on the website, there are, there are visualizations of a number of sort of pre-run scenarios, which really is just an attempt to illustrate how the model works and what some of the results are. Uh, but the, but from the website, you can download the model onto your own machine. And, of course, there's a whole lot of documentation which explains how to do that and how to run the model. Okay, great stuff. Well, um, Jose and um, Oliver, thank you very much for joining Energy Insiders. Thank you for having us.
a great pleasure, Joss. And that was uh, Jose Zapata from IT Power, along with Oliver Waldring. Um, David, um, coincide with the um, with the um, with the ISP. Um, look, a, a very worthy project, but probably not one for the punter because it is um, does take some complexity and some deep analysis. All the same. Look, a model is only as good as the person, uh, as the inputs you put into it, and putting those inputs in requires a lot of skill. Uh, I, I admire these guys for doing that, and I think it's going to be a great help, and people will use it. But I will say that from my background in investment banking, the first thing a new analyst did when he moved in to take over a company was to throw out the gold guy's model and build his own, because a, a model is like a reflection of your personality more than anything else. Uh, and and. Basically, it gets to the point where only the person operating the model actually understands the output. But, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but that's the truth of the matter. Uh, and of course, you know, the models have to cope. The real world often just doesn't suit any model, no matter how good it is. So, for instance, this week we had again news that Portland Smelter, which is losing money on an EBITDA, that's earnings before interest, tax and depreciation. So it's basically got negative cash flow pretty much. Uh, not a lot, about 30 or 40 million a year, um, uh, is, is, and, but that's with a heavily subsidised power price. So that's about 2.5%, of, around about 5 terawatt hours, 2.5% of, of NEM demand uh, and more as a share of Victoria. I think keeping that smelter open caused power prices to be $5 a megawatt hour at least, higher than they otherwise would have been because of the subsidies. And that's a billion dollars, $5 times 200 terawatt hours. That's a, that's a billion dollars uh, over the whole economy. So $3 billion in total to keep the 500 or 600 people going. So these things are well worth thinking about. That's a billion dollars a year then. Yes. That sounds like a fairly hefty cross-subsidy. I wonder why we don't shout very loudly about that. Well, because in the end, I actually support keeping energy-intensive industries going, but I suppose they have to do it on their own two feet. I mean, uh, Australia's manufacturing and resource extraction has been built in part on having low-cost energy. I don't think, actually, by global standards, uh, Australia's power at the generator level is expensive. Uh, it's about the same as in China, for instance, but it'd be lower it'll be higher than in the united states and higher than in the middle east which have got very cheap gas at the moment but relative to most other countries it's comparable or even slightly below but it's it's not an advantage anymore and the only way i can see that we're going to move back to an advantage at the generator level is by focusing even more on the renewable the renewable resources, which can be cheaper than mo those of most other countries. Well, that's certainly um, the uh, the reason behind these big plans for these sort of mega projects. I guess we could call them the 15 gigawatts in the Pilbara, the five gigawatts in the um, near um, north of Perth, and the 10 gigawatts in Northern Territory. Um, whether they will come to pass, that's certainly um, people thinking deeply about this and the possibilities for either hydrogen exports or green metals having processing and production here. Um, David, probably time to wrap up, but um, just point next week, um, there's the All Energy Conference in Melbourne, which will be a, um, a, uh, another important gathering and, and interesting to see what comes out of that. And then I guess we're just probably just gearing up after that for finally a, um, a COAG Energy meeting at the end of November. And then I've no doubt at all in the last eight weeks of the year, we're going to be absolutely inundated with reports and analysis and all sorts of major announcements and it'll probably be very hard to digest everything. 
well, that sounds like situation normal to me. Uh, <laughs> it is. But fortunately, you can listen to the Energy Insiders podcast and you'll get a simple, straightforward view of what really matters. Yeah, that's right. We'll spend the time re- reading it and analysing it and then trying to condense it in, in time for a podcast. Look, thank you very much, David. And look, thanks very much to our sponsors first, um, Solaray Energy, right here with us from the start, and also Evergen. We do appreciate your support. And David, um, great to talk, and um, we'll be back again next week. Look forward to that, Charles. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Solar Ray Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Wattwatches, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use.